are in chapter 14 this morning. It's on page 901 in your pew Bible, John 14, verses 15 through 31. You'll remember if you've been with us for the last few weeks, especially last week, that Jesus and the disciples are in the upper room. This is the night before Jesus is to go to the cross. And he has spelled out to his disciples that he is about to leave them, that there's going to be a moment where he's going to be crucified, that hour is here, he's going to die, he will rise again, and then he will ascend into heaven. And his physical presence will not be with the disciples or with anybody any longer. And the disciples are feeling vulnerable. They're feeling insecure because they have staked their whole life upon Jesus Christ and upon their identity in him. And so what Jesus says to them, to them to comfort the disciples is that he is going to go away, but he is going to go away and he is going to prepare for them a home. He is going to prepare for them a room in the Father's house. And he's talking about heaven, of course. And that hope of heaven that the Christian has and that these disciples have are what grants us peace and grants us security, which really fuels our life in this life which reminds us that this world is not our home, so we don't stake all of our claims upon this life, but at the same time, we seek to live out our identity in Christ in this life. Because that home that we have received is a home that is received by grace alone, something that we did not earn on our own. And when we receive such a wonderful gift and such an incredible, secure hope, that leads us to lead gospel-transformed lives and leads us to be obedient in the day-to-day lives of our in the day-to-day constructs of our lives. But Jesus goes on and he gives them another assurance, another promise. And that promise is that he is not going to leave them alone in this life. It's not just that they merely have a secure hope in the next life, but in this life he is going to make his home alongside the disciples. And what he means by that is that he is going to send the Holy Spirit in a new and unique powerful way to live within the souls of us, where we will be temples of the Holy Spirit, and where he will do wonderful works. And he says even in John chapter 14 that greater works than he has done, we will do, and his disciples will do. And it's because the Holy Spirit has come alongside us. And he's going to spell that out for us just a little bit in this passage and in several others as we make our way through the rest of the Gospel of John. But let's take a moment to read this passage now from John 14, beginning in verse 15 through the end of the chapter in verse 31. Jesus says this to the disciples, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. 
Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave you with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, and the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Amen. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. We ask this morning that he would write that word upon all of our hearts. One of the things that I've discovered as I've been in the church and been in ministry and that I continue to to discover more and more is that very much of what we believe as Christians is reactionary. So a lot of what we believe that is a reaction against certain things that we dislike. And there are beliefs and, and lifestyles that people have that we embrace and others that we dislike. And those that we dislike, we condemn. And those that we like and appreciate, we canonize as being our own. And what this has oftentimes caused us to do is to skew the tension points that exist in Scripture, that exist in the Christian faith. And oftentimes we find ourselves walking off the cliff on one side at the expense of something that is actually good and right and true on the other side of that tension point. So for instance, is God really in control over all things? Is he sovereign? Is he the one that takes the initiative to save us, to sanctify us? Is he in control of all the circumstances of our life? Or do we have responsibility? Are we responsible for our lives, responsible for obedience, responsible for faithfulness? The answer to that is yes, to both questions, even though they're intention. Is there supposed to be unity in the church or is there supposed to be diversity in the church? And the answer is yes, there's to be both. They're intention. Do we worship God with the highest reverence? Andy was mentioning in the confession this morning that a sense of reverence and awe and sobriety, but also joy. See, God is to be worshipped in the splendor of holiness, as the psalmist says, but there's also this thing that happens when Jesus comes and he takes on flesh and he dwells among us and he bears our burdens and he conquers sin and death in the resurrection that ought to make our worship also very joyful full of celebration. We're here to celebrate Jesus this morning and we're here to honor him and worship him in the splendor of holiness. And to make a mistake on one side is to make a massive mistake in the, in the midst of our Christian life. There are these tensions that we know of of God and his word. And they're not contradictions, but they must be held equally together. And so I think about that. I think about that reality of what you and I and, and pretty much anybody can fall into that trap And I think about that in light of a friend of mine and a member of our former church in San Diego who would talk to me regularly about the fact that he felt that our church had not paid enough attention to the Holy Spirit. That we had neglected the Holy Spirit 
And we've done so in reaction to the brand of Christianity that bypasses the mind and goes straight for the emotional experience. And so we're missing out on something about the Holy Spirit that is to bring about joy in our worship together and in our walk in the Christian life. Now, leaving beside the point whether or not he was right, it is worth considering that we as individuals and we as a church may have a highly undeveloped view of the Holy Spirit. We don't zero in on him like we zero in on the other persons of the Trinity. There's, there's a reason why Presbyterians are called the frozen chosen. There's a, there's a good possibility that we are missing out on this third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who Jesus is going to talk about time after time after time in the rest of this gospel and that we are going to see come in a beautiful, powerful way in the book of Acts. See, here's the deal about Christianity. Christianity, genuine, true Christianity, is spirit-filled Christianity. Spirit-filled Christianity is full of the gospel. It's full of the Bible. It is a Christ-centered, gospel-saturated life, but a Christ-centered, gospel-saturated life is a life that zeroes in on the Spirit, that zeroes in on the Holy Spirit, that is filled and informed by Him. And so He brings about this reverence and this joy as we come to worship Him. This time of sobriety and celebration as we worship Him, as He brings the Word of God to bear upon our lives, not only in corporate worship together on the Lord's Day, but as we go out into the world and live out the Gospel in the ordinary experience of our life. And the reason why we can have this reverence and this joy in our life together and in our lives as we go out is because Jesus has promised us that he will not leave us alone, that he has not left us alone, abandoned us, left us as orphans. He has brought his presence to us. He has given us his spirit. He has given us a helper, as he says in this passage, an advocate, a counselor, one who teaches us all things, who guides us in truth, who brings that word, those promises of the gospel, to bear upon our lives so that we would be equipped to live that out, to think and feel and live Christ-focused lives. That's what the Holy Spirit does. I love this verse, verse 18 in this passage. It is a beautiful verse. This is what he promises you, Christian, and he promises to me. He's telling you this. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. We don't see very many orphans in America. Little Orphan Annie, that play, that movie, that was made a long time ago. We don't see orphans in America very often, but if you go to the third world, you can't miss them. Orphans are abundant. They're everywhere. And in Afghanistan alone, there's an estimated 1.5 million orphaned children. 1.5 million orphaned children in Afghanistan alone. About eight or nine years ago, I had a chance to go to Romania, and I, I, I visited an orphanage in Romania, and I expected to see young children in this orphanage. But what I did not expect to see were teenagers, 15, 16, 17-year-old teenagers who never knew a day of their life where they were not brought up in an orphanage. They never knew their birth parents. 
They never knew what it was like to even have adopted parents or foster parents. They just grew up in this building with a hundred other kids their whole life. It was the fallout of the Ceausescu regime in Romania, the communist party that was in existence there. I think for most of us, even if your family background was awful, it's hard to imagine what it must be like to be an orphan what normal looks like. That's their concept of normal. I can't even begin to imagine all of the contours that that would take. But one of the things that must be apparent in the life of an orphan is that that child would feel remarkably defenseless. That, that they would have an acute sense of fear. That they would not know the nurture and instruction and relational presence of parents who love them more than they actually love themselves. It's not even on their radar screen. An orphan's life is full of abandonment. It, it's characterized by neglect. In fact, counselors will tell you, professional therapists will tell you that it is harder to treat a child who has been neglected than it is to treat a child who has been abused. And that's an orphan's life. But you know, you look into the eyes of an orphan and you discover that people are people, don't you? You look into someone's eyes who may be vastly older or younger, of a different culture, different background, an orphan. You look into their eyes and you discover that at the end of the day, people are people. They have many of the same wants, they have many of the same fears, many of the same desires. And so I could go to Romania and I could look into the eyes of this 15-year-old girl who was an orphan and discover that there's not much about her that is any different from me. Because she feels vulnerable. And so do I. And so we respond in ways together that express a defensiveness about the way in which we live our lives. For me, that pans out in marriage. That pans out in my relationships with people. This orphan, she feels insecure. And I feel insecure. And so we go about validating our existence by building our lives upon getting our desires met. Or we go inward and we check out from God and from other people because we're, we've been hurt, been bruised too many times. We feel needy. She feels needy, so do I. So we focus on our own needs at the expense of others. She's afraid, and I'm afraid. And so we're both paranoid about our future and our security in this life. And my friends, I would suggest to you this. At the bottom of all of those feelings and beliefs is the notion that we are fundamentally on our own in this life. We have, as Christians, lost the concept that we've been adopted by a loving Father who has taken us when we were once far off and has brought us near and has established a home for us and has given us a new family and a new name and has made us His children. We miss out on that. We fail to see that all the time and we live as if we are orphans. We live as if we have a Father that doesn't call us children. As if, as if we've been left alone to fend for ourselves. It's the belief that we've either been abandoned by God or that God just really wasn't there to begin with. 
wasn't there in the first place. All of those things, all of those beliefs are actually byproducts of our unbelief, of our unbelief in the gospel, of our unbelief in who Jesus says he is and and who the Holy Spirit says he is. Isn't the life of someone who does not believe in Christ defined by the absence of the true and living God? Isn't that what their life is defined by? Isn't it at least defined by by an impersonal distance from God? Aren't those things characteristic of someone who doesn't understand God as being near, being available, being present, as one who guides you and nurtures you and helps you? See, what, what Jesus wants us to see here is that if your trust and your identity are actually wrapped up in Him, if you have stopped resting in yourselves and you trust in Him alone, that He has not left us as if we are orphans. That's not how He's left us. He has come to us. His presence and His power and His provision are with you. That's the promise that He leaves with you here. In verse 17, He says that He has left a helper who would be with us forever. He's given us a helper. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. And He'd be with us forever. Jesus calls Him a helper here. And it's a difficult word in the Greek to translate. The actual Greek word is paraclete. And in your Bible, you'll notice that it's translated helper. But in the footnotes at the bottom of your Bible, you also notice that there's a little footnote there. And it could also be translated as advocate or counselor. Any one of those words is a, is a perfectly appropriate translation of this word paraclete that Jesus is trying to get us to see here. It's a word that has legal connotations. He's saying that the Holy Spirit is the one who comes and who stands up for us in our defense. He vouches for our character. He speaks up for us when we are accused. He stands in our place on our behalf. I don't know if you've ever been a defendant in a trial before. I have not, and I hope I never will be. But if I am... It's time for Johnny Cochran. I want, I want the best defense lawyer that I can find to defend me in that case. I don't want some legal novice who doesn't have a clue of what they're doing because it's going to leave me feeling vulnerable. It's going to leave me feeling as if that attorney does not care for me, isn't on my side. I want the best one that I can find. And when he defends me or she defends me and the, and the jury comes back and says, not guilty. I'm going to be able to go throughout the course of my life with a sense of confidence that I did not have before that trial, before that pronouncement of being not guilty. I want the best advocate, the best legal counselor, the best help that I can find. And the Holy Spirit, what Jesus is saying here, is your advocate. He is advocating for you 24-7. There's never a moment of your life where He is not standing for you. Doesn't Paul say this, that He actually intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words? He's standing there saying what we can't say for ourselves. See, our, our sin condemns us. We've discovered that this morning. Our sin condemns us, but there's the Holy Spirit vouching for us, not because our character is so great, but because Christ's character has become our own. 
It's been credited to us. We are seen as having the character of Jesus Christ, that perfect righteousness. And so, when all of the accusations come against us, there's the Holy Spirit saying, look at Jesus in that person. Look at the fact that that person, that Darren Stone, is a, is a heinous sinner who has yet still been clothed in the beautiful righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's always saying that whenever the accusations come. That's the confidence that you have to go about living the Christian life. To go about living in the context of your relationships and responsibilities. And that's what the Holy Spirit does for you. The Holy Spirit is doing that despite the fact that you screw up a lot in this life. He's there and he's standing in your place. And when you realize that, when that becomes a reality, that gives you the confidence to go out and live. That gives you the confidence to have to, 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 to be able to stop hiding, to stop covering up all of that junk in your life with the fig leaves, to stop going about and justifying it and excusing it. What it actually enables you to do is own it and say, yes, I'm a big sinner, but I have an even bigger Savior with the Spirit who's standing in my place and acquitting me because Jesus has done his work for me in the gospel. We have a deep theological word for this in Christian theology. It's called grace. Imagine that. It's what he does. And it drives us to obedience. That grace actually propels us to live obedient lives. Because when you think about the fact that you have a punishment, that you have a penalty that deserves to be punished, but it's been paid for by somebody else, it, it drives us out to respond with gratitude. That's what it does. And friends, the Christian life is about that. It's about receiving forgiveness. It's about having your penalty paid for. And it's called grace. And it's about responding to that with faithfulness, with obedience, out of gratitude to what he's done for us. So the question is, what kind of shape does that take in our lives? What are the contours of what the Christian life looks like when you've received such an abundant grace and you have an advocate standing in your place before the Father? Well, to figure out what that would look like, it would seem like we would need a teacher, someone to instruct us, someone to show us the way. Someone to give us wisdom when we don't know what to do. And Jesus is saying here in this passage that that is exactly what the Spirit does. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. See, the, the Spirit-filled life is not just about going out and manufacturing the best common sense that you can possibly produce. Having a little common sense would do us a lot of good. There's no doubt about that. But that's not just what the the spirit-filled life is about. Because when you look at people who cherished God, who loved God in both testaments of Scripture, there are a lot of things that they did that didn't make a lot of common sense. And some of it was just flat-out crazy. It was risky. It caused many of them to lose their own lives for the sake of the glory of God and for the sake of delighting in Him. The spirit-filled life is not merely just living a life of common sense. It's also not about living the Glenn Beck-centered life. It's not about just imbibing good, social, conservative family values 
as wonderful as many of those things are, it's not about imbibing that and then just having this generic vision of God that is not deeply, deeply informed by the Scripture. See, Christianity is about living the gospel-driven life. It's about living a life that is gospel-saturated. It's about living the life that Christ has spelled out for us and that the Holy Spirit empowers us to live. And where is that found? It's found in the Bible alone. It's found in Scripture. It's found in the way in which God communicates to us as if we were His children, as if we were His friends. Whenever someone comes up to me and says, I feel like the Holy Spirit is telling me to do X, Y, and Z. The way I can tell if it's the Holy Spirit or just hot wings that were too spicy last night, the way I can tell the difference is if what they say is actually in line with what Scripture has to say. Because that's the way the Holy Spirit speaks to us. In Paul's letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians, he says that being filled with the Spirit, being actually filled with the Spirit, is akin to letting the Word of Christ dwell richly within us. So if you want to be in tune to what the Spirit has to say, what He has to teach you, then the key is to be in tune to the Scriptures, to read and to memorize Scripture. When I was doing college ministry, we had a very pious group of of kids who really did love God, but they constantly, in their time of prayer requests, would pray for their quiet time that they would have better quiet times, meaning those times where you read Scripture and pray. And I actually put a moratorium on those prayers and disallowed them from vocalizing that prayer request anymore because what they had done is they had built their spiritual stature on the basis of how long and how well their quiet times actually were. But I think there's something that we can learn from them, and it's that God communicates to us. We have a God who actually lives in relationship with us. And he communicates to us by and according to his word. That's the way in which he brings his life to bear upon our own and transforms us and grows us and matures us. And so there's something to be said for us to to dedicate some time in our day and time in our life to actually diving into scripture so that we can hear what the spirit is trying to say to us. That's, the, that's what Jesus wants us to see. It's communion. It's fellowship with God. I have a tremendously high view of worship together on Sunday and of preaching. If I didn't, I would go out and do something else. But if this is the only Bible that you're getting over the course of your week, I would ask you to consider that you might be malnourishing your soul. Because this is something that we build our lives upon. We feed upon this word. Jesus says that we don't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's our spiritual food. It's our spiritual nourishment. It's what gives us eyes to hear, eyes to see. Eyes don't hear, do they? It's ears that hear. Ears to hear, eyes to see, a palate to taste that the Lord is good. That's what he desires in us and that he desires to work out within our lives. And at the very least, in the Word, we need to be reminded that we need the Gospel and reminded of what that Gospel is. Reminder of the beauty of what Christ has done for us in it. 
We forget the gospel. We remember it in our minds, but we forget it in the way in which we go about and live. The gospel sticks to us about as well as jello sticks when you try to nail it to the wall. And so we need this constant reminder. The Spirit speaks to us and through His Word. He not only speaks for us and advocating for us, but He speaks to us through the Word. He's our attorney. He is our teacher. He is our legal counsel. But He's also our spiritual and personal counselor. And any kind of Christianity that lacks either side of that is fundamentally vulnerable. It makes you live as, as if you're an orphan. And Jesus says that he hasn't left you vulnerable and he hasn't left you or, orphaned. He's there fighting for you, standing in your place, leading you in your midst personally. That's what Jesus is doing and that's what the Holy Spirit has come to do. Here's the last thing I want, to, I want you to see and then we'll be done. Last week, if you look up to verse 2 in chapter 14, you will discover that Jesus was going to leave the disciples to prepare a place for them in his Father's house. And then if you look down to verse 23, look at what Jesus says. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And in verse 26, he's saying that that home will be the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come in Jesus' name. Don't miss the wonder of that. The reason why we can have peace, and the reason why we can have confidence in this life, and the fuel that propels us to obedience, is the fact that we have a home in glory that is already secured for us. We already have that. We have that hope, and it can never be snatched out of our hands. But in this life, in the details of this life, we also have the hope that the Holy Spirit has come and made His home in us. That's where He resides. He is, we are the dwelling place in which God lives by His Spirit, as Paul tells us in Ephesians. That's the basis for our peace. He says, peace I leave you, peace, my peace I give to you. This is a world and a life in which peace seems to be so fleeting. And we have so much anxiety and so much fear. And Jesus is saying, he doesn't give you peace like the world gives you peace, like the sun will come out tomorrow and think happy thoughts. He's saying, I can give you a deep peace right deep down to the level of your soul. Because you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that my spirit is within you, equipping you, standing in your place, teaching you in the way in which you need to go, forgiving you, bringing you home. That's what the spirit does for you. It's this idea of shalom. In Israel, they answer the phone saying, shalom. It's this idea of peace, that he's the one that comforts us. That's our peace. He's the one that guides us. He's the one that reassures us that though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. That's our comfort. That's our peace. Him standing up for us. And what a beautiful promise that is. And when you start believing that, you will have gospel confidence. 
Not confidence in yourself, but full confidence in Him who's able to work in you, to will and to act according to His good purpose. May He make it so in our lives. Let's bow our hearts before Him now in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Spirit, that You have not left us alone as orphans, hopeless, void of Your presence, void of Your power, void of Your promises. We have all of those in the Gospel and we thank You that the Holy Spirit is standing in our place, that He's making our case because of the blood of Jesus Christ spilt for us. We thank You that You are guiding us, teaching us, driving us to You. Father, let us be people who love Your Word so that we would see more of you, see your beauty, and enjoy the Spirit dwelling richly within us. May that happen for your glory and for our joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.